Hey, Wiretappers. Well, Merry Christmas. This is a special episode that I did earlier in the year, and I forgot I even had it in here, and I thought it was a really interesting story. So this is my uh, Christmas present to you here on uh, December the uh, 25th. I think uh, Santa Claus came down your chimney last night and left you a another podcast. So uh, welcome and enjoy the story of John Ambrose, the U.S. Marshal in Chicago, who was caught trying to reveal the location of Nick Calabrese during the family secrets trial. Now, you know, that was a huge trial. This just illustrates how important the U.S. Marshals Witness Protection Program really is. Merry Christmas, everybody. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, Wiretappers, into the studio of Gangland Wire. I'm back here in the studio alone again today. Recently, while noodling around on the Internet looking for stories, I found a kind of an interesting Chicago outfit story that I had not heard before. A lot of you guys may have heard this story, but I never heard it now. We're all familiar with the well-respected U.S. Marshal's Office, and we know that they're trusted with the security of government witnesses. That's the Witness Protection Program, or WITSEC, as they say in government speak. Now, the mob and the Chicago outfit in particular are well known for witness intimidation and even murder of witnesses. So WITSEC is a dangerous job, and they require absolute obedience to the rules by their officers. I think there was another one where they compromised a U.S. Marshal, but I'm not sure. Something about Gotti, but I, I may be getting that mixed up with another court employee when John Gotti was on trial. But anyhow, moving right along. According to the U.S. Marshals Service website, they're the nation's oldest federal law enforcement. They've served our country since 1789. Now, President George Washington appointed the first 13 U.S. Marshals. Interesting number. At that time, Congress gave them the duties to capture fugitives from justice, the housing and transport of prisoners after arrest and before conviction, sentencing, witness security, judicial security, for example, protection of all the federal judges in the uh, Supreme Court. They would have a big contingency of U.S. Marshals around the whole building and inside the building and to escort those uh, Supreme Court justices wherever they go. Here in Kansas City, what they've done, they contract out at the courthouse, and most federal courthouses are like this. The U.S. Marshals contract out to a private security company. In Kansas City, they hired primarily retired Kansas City police officers to man all the fixed posts, just sit inside of a courtroom, maybe if there was a trial, if they thought there might be some heat around, or just to watch the magnometers and check you through. I used to be able to go down there, and they just waved me on through because I knew all those guys when I was practicing law. Well, in the present time, there's little known about those very active law enforcement agencies. Most of you guys probably don't know a U.S. Marshal, or very few people do. I know, I know hardly any. I didn't work with any of them. Except once in a while, there would be a U.S. Marshal get assigned to a drug task force investigation with other agencies like DEA and the FBI and the local police. But, you know, in uh, 2010 alone, the U.S. Marshal Service arrested more than 36,100 federal fugitives. The most sensitive function of the U.S. Marshal Service is WITSEC, of course. The Marshal Service provides everything for People who are taken into the witness protection program, they have to provide their security. 
and for the health and safety of government witnesses and their immediate family members, whoever they're allowed to bring along. I know they go through a vetting process and the family members have to agree to everything. And, you know, like you got teenagers, they may not want to go along. Or a guy's got a wife or a woman's got a spouse. They may not want to change their name and move to another city. They, You know, they were not involved in any of this, but they're responsible to keep them safe if they go by the rules. Now, everybody has to play by the U.S. Marshal Service rules. Most of their witnesses are, of course, involved with organized crime, mafia-style organized crime, but drug trafficking, terrorism, and any other major criminal enterprises where there could be kind of any kind of a threat to a government witness. They have relocated and protected more than 8,300 witnesses and 9,800 of their family members since the start of the program in 1971. So far to date, no WITSEC participants who have followed the security guidelines have been harmed while under the active protection of the U.S. Marshals. But there have been a very few leaks, but there have been a few leaks, and I'm going to tell you about one today. Now, you guys from Chicago, but anybody that really follows the mob knows that the Family Secrets trial was really huge. It really kind of put the cap on the Chicago outfit, and they're still operating with this one. This one hurt them big time and really exposed a lot of things. They had several hits. You know, Operation Grey Lord took out a lot of politicians and made all the rest of the politicians run for cover. The straw man case, skimming from Las Vegas casinos. A few years later, after the straw man case, came along the Family Secrets case, which really, really hurt them bad. You know, our friend Red Wilmette came up and testified in that. Ken Edo testified in that. They had, I think maybe uh, Jimmy Fradiano testified in that. They really brought out all the witnesses they could because they were determined to take off this kind of mid-level gang that was doing a lot of the murders for the outfit. Now, one of the most important witnesses in that family secrets case, of course, was Nick Calabrese. We've interviewed his nephew, Frank Calabrese Jr., and I suggest that you go back and listen to that for more on the Calabrese crew because he really laid it out in detail what they had done. Now, Nick Calabrese... He worked under the direction of his older brother, Frank Calabrese Sr., as part of a murder team and a juice loan collection service. They were all part of the 26th Street crew, or the Chinatown crew, some people call them. And their capo was Angelo the Hook La Prieta, who was a particularly violent mobster. He got the hook, supposedly, because he to hang people up on meat hooks and torture them a little bit before he killed them. Like I've said before, what's up with you guys in the outfit? You always want to torture people for a while before you kill them. Their headquarters was a social club called the Old Neighborhood Italian-American Club at 26 in Princeton. And then it's moved uh, a little ways away. I understand that La Prieta, see, he was getting a big chunk of that casino money, and he built a big fancy club uh, not too far away. I think it's a restaurant, and I think, and it's still operating today. You guys up in Chicago might check that out. To get this started, on July 28, 1995, the feds indicted Nick Calabrese and nine other organized crime figures for using threats, violence, and intimidation to enforce the loan sharking racket from 1978 until 1992. Now, these other defendants were Frank Calabrese Sr., Frank Calabrese Jr., Kurt Calabrese. And Kurt Calabrese, if you're out there, he contacted me once and volunteered to come on the podcast. And, and we had a little internet communication and I haven't heard back from him. Robert Danella. Philip J. Flore, Terry Scalise, Kevin Kudels, Louis Bombasino, and Philip Tomaleo. Nick Calabrese was eventually found guilty of racketeering. 
On October 27, 1997, a federal judge sentenced Calabrese to 70 months in federal prison. Now, that's what about five years and 10 months. Now we find out what probably why he got such a light sentence. He apologized to the court. He said, I caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. And I have to assume that he must have made a deal. And that's why he got a 70-month sentence. A little bit later, we found out that he did have a plea agreement with the government, and he admitted to taking part in 14 murders and claimed that they were all ordered by Angelo the Hook La Pietra. Now, La Pietra was in the joint for a long time by this point in time for the his part in the skimming investigation. So Nick Calabrese is serving his time. You know, whenever you go into witness protection, many times you have to serve a certain amount of time. They don't, don't let you walk away many times. He was in a federal correctional facility up in Milan, Michigan. An enterprising young Chicago Tribune reporter named John Cass learned that Calabrese had disappeared from the Milan penitentiary and that all his prison records were missing as well. Well, that's a huge red flag there. This was in 2003, and by the time Cass broke the story, I think the government, he probably got hold of government more than likely how they do that. And they work out a deal, say, okay, you can break the story at this point in time because we're ready to surface him by then anyhow. So on February 21st, 2003, John Cass broke the story that Calabrese was talking to the FBI. And he took note that Calabrese had disappeared from the prison system. His records were gone and that everybody believes that he's in witness protection. Well, about the same time, of course, the Bureau's already ready to go with their case, and they spread out across the city and, and really across the country with search warrants, collecting DNA evidence, hair cuttings, oral swabs from many, many outfit members. When we say they had to go across the United States, they had to go down to Phoenix to get Paulie Shiro. He was part of this. On April 25, 2005, prosecutors indicted 12 Chicago outfit figures. Two former police officers. This was on charges of murder, illegal gambling, and loan sharking. Called this the family secrets, as I said before. But this whole case relied totally on Calabrese's cooperation, but yet they also had some DNA evidence. Matter of fact, that's how they turned Calabrese, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. The cops had found a bloody glove at the scene of a hit on a mob enforcer named John Farah that DNA evidence was Calabrese. So that's really the kind of the final thing that pushed him over because he was looking at, they probably threatened him with a death sentence. Well, this podcast isn't really about the family secrets case. I just need to tell you that to get up to this story. It's a side story about the corruption of a U.S. Marshal named John T. Ambrose, who was a Chicago law enforcement legacy. The outfit was desperate to find and silence our friend Nick Calabrese, as you might well imagine. Talk about family secrets, this guy knew him, and he was one of their most prolific killers for many years. If you remember, his nephew talked about the Calabrese brothers, his dad and uncle, and how they liked it. I think it was his dad, but his uncle was always along with him, do the Calabrese necktie. He'd always, if he shot somebody, he'd always cut their throat. If he cut their throat, he'd shoot them too. The other five defendants, Joe Lombardo, James Marcello, Frank Calabrese Sr., Paula Shiro and Anthony Doyle, who's called Twan, who was a former Chicago cop. And they're all deceased now, except for Paula Shiro, who I noticed recently is implying for a compassionate leave because of COVID-19. During the trial, everybody learned that back in January 2002, this is the trials in like 2005, 
FBI agents confronted Nick Calabrese with this bloody glove I talked about that he dropped at the scene this murder of John Farragarota. He admitted to that, and he said his brother, Frank Calabrese Sr., joined him in that murder, and another guy who is now deceased named John Monteleone. One of the most interesting things that Nick Calabrese talked about was why he killed John Farragarota. He was part of the whole hit team that killed Anthony and Michael Spilatro, and he explained how they did it, where they did it, and he said that he was ordered to kill Farragarota because this was a guy who was responsible for disposing of the Spilatro's bodies, and the men that he did it got lazy and didn't bury the bodies deep enough and botched the job, and it came out real quick, and they did not want that coming out. They just wanted them disappeared. They knew the heat would come down if anybody found the bodies. So John Farrakhoda not only had screwed up that, he was criticized for a variety of other things. And one of the things kind of interesting, he would bring a girlfriend along on stakeouts of potential murder victims. He was a weak link. He was somebody that had made a lot of mistakes already. So this was just the final straw that broke the camel's back, as we say, or the final nail in his coffin, maybe. I don't know. Come up with a good analogy for that. Well, during the trial, the U.S. Marshal Service brought... Nick Calabrese to Chicago on a couple of occasions in 2002-2003 to testify, and while he was there, he always stayed at a safe house they had rented out in the suburbs, I believe. And it was a U.S. Marshal named John T. Ambrose assigned to be one of his guards. Now, at this point in time, when Calabrese was coming back and forth to Chicago, the Bureau had some court-authorized audio and visual recordings in a penitentiary visiting room, and they recorded an outfit member named Michael Marcello talking with his brother James Marcello, and the Marcellos were heard discussing information that had been provided by a babysitter of the witness against the rest of the outfit guys. At this time, the authorities could not figure out who this babysitter was, but when they heard the word babysitter used and some information about Calabrese, they figured it was one of the guards. Some of the additional information that was revealed in recordings later on found that the Marcellos were speaking in coded terms, and they used gestures sometimes in place of words, so they had to... You look at the video during the audio to see what the gesture was in order to figure out the code or what they were talking about. It's really difficult, folks, to listen to a couple of guys talk that both have shared experiences, uh, shared places that they know about. They don't have to finish every sentence or describe everything that they're talking about for the other one to get the message. So agents piece together interpretations of these conversations from both audio and visual. Now, an example of an audio and a videotape that they interpreted happened on January 30th, 2003. Michael Marcello indicated to his brother James, the big thing with them is a Shivago deal. That's like Dr. Shivago. Now, from prior experience in other wiretaps and talking to informants, FBI agents had ascertained that when somebody talked about the Shivago deal, they were using that as a reference to the murders of Michael and Anthony Spilatro. And these were unsolved murders, of course, what I said before, that Calabrese had information on that and was talking about that. And this was one that they really did not want to come back to him. When Michael Marcello talked about the Chivago deal, Michael responded, well, we don't know what he said about that, but I'm telling you, you're in there. You know how far, whatever, I don't know. The guy can only do what he can do. You know what I'm saying? When you're in there, that meant you were part of that. He can pin that murder on you. James then asked, well, that's all he saw was names? 
Talking about he, who's this he that he saw was names. Michael replied, the guy had notes. He put his hands out indicating a pad of paper and writing on them as if someone were writing notes. The threat assessment that was part of Calabrese's WITSEC file indicated he had participated in 16 murders and had knowledge of 22 other murders. Now, the investigators at this penitentiary heard these Marcello brothers talk about similar numbers. Michael Marcello said he didn't say that he did 19 of them things. Now, no one outside the investigation knew exactly or even close how many murders of Calabrese admitted involvement in or knowledge of. Well, the numbers are not exact. They're really close. That number of 19 was not exact, but they're pretty close to the actual numbers that Calabrese talked about as being. He he participated in 16. He talked about 22 other murders. In later conversations, they heard talk about the guy who was given the information as the babysitter. Michael asked James, here's where we get into how they figured out who the guy was and the babysitter. If you listen to our one about Gotti and the informant, his informant, who was a police detective, how they figured out who that guy was, took a lot of good police work. This took a lot of good decoding here and having knowledge of the case and knowledge of Chicago crime happenings, everything that's going on in Chicago, not just with the outfit, but with local investigations. So in a later conversation, they heard talk about the guy who was giving information who was the babysitter. And when they're talking about him, Michael asked James, he said, well, you know Tony Duranjo? He was a copper. James stated, well, he grew up with him in our old neighborhood, that district. Then Michael explained the Marquette 10. And Duranjo was friends with this guy. That might be Durango. Another guy by the name of Guide. Guide was close to this guy. They knew him from Marion Camp. That would apparently be a reference to the federal prison camp in Marion, Illinois. The kid's father was with them on that beef and everything. He went down with them. He died, though. Kid's father died, so they like, you know, that kid comes down. You know what I mean? So the kid would be the babysitter or that guy. He has something to do with the Marquette 10. He has something to do with Durango. He has something to do with a guy named Guide, or Guide, spelled Guide. So now you got to go figure What's the deal here? Who is this? How is he connected to them? A little bit later, Michael told James on another date, you know that kid there, that kid that handles him once in a while? You know he was there. He was there for a week, a little over a week, right in front of the thing. They were driving him all over the city. He took him down east by Pagliacci that way. Now, Pagliacci or Pagliacci means clown in Italian, and we all know that many people refer to Joey Lombardo as the clown. Michael revealed that Calabrese had been taken to the Bridgeport area, which is near U.S. Cellular Field, and which is a stadium for the White Sox. Michael continued, now this is, this is from like yesterday. Oh, the Muliari, which is, that's a Italian slang for your wife. Three times gesturing hand to head, he dialed the number himself, like, you know, he made a gesture as if he's calling somebody. He said the kid dialed the phone number. Well, now, the agents knew that a few weeks before this conversation they overheard from the Marcellos, Calabrese had traveled to Chicago from his safe house outside the city. The agents had driven him around town to identify locations of murders and where bodies had been buried, and they did go to U.S. Cellular Field, was one of those locations. They also knew that Calabrese called his wife from the safe house inside the city at least twice during that time. 
when they heard that reference to the Mark at 10, they researched, somebody remembered, okay, the Mark at 10, that was a famous case. I even knew that one, remembered that one. My friend Steve St. John was in the joint with a bunch of these uh, ex-Chicago coppers who were up at Leavenworth for a while. We're talking about, we're going to do a story on that one of these days. Well, they researched into that old corruption case against these 10 Chicago cops. They'd been charged with shaking down bars and drug dealers and illegal gambling locations. One of those officers was named Thomas Ambrose. Plus, he had died in prison. They talked about, well, the kid, you know, his, his father died in prison. He was connected to the Marquette 10. Well, they learned that two of the co-defendants in that Marquette 10 case were other police officers, and one was named William Guide or Guide and Frank Durango. They knew that members of the Chicago outfit, Guide, knew John Nono's DeFranzo, and Durango knew Joy the Clown from their time in the penitentiary. Now, they knew, they looked at all the other members of the U.S. Marshals team, and John T. Ambrose is the son of Thomas Ambrose, and he was assigned to protect and guard as Calabrese, and he had access to the safe house where they had some of the files stored, too. They did a fingerprint examination of the files that were inside that safe house and found two prints matching Ambrose's, one on the cover sheet on the top and one on the inner side of the last page. So he had had that file in his hand, and that's when he must have made notes from it. So in light of all that information, the government figured they had enough evidence that Ambrose was the snitch. He was the babysitter. He was the guy. And they charged him with crimes of theft of government property and unauthorized disclosure. I guess there's a statute for unauthorized disclosure. Here, I've even got it written down here if you want to look it up. 18 U.S.C. 3521, I believe. The government did not know yet the extent of the breach and who else was involved in the matter, so they wanted to get Ambrose to come in and testify and offer him some kind of a plea agreement. They can't, of course, can't leave him in the U.S. Marshal's office. And in that situation, you know, the dude's got to take a conviction, and the dude's got to serve a little time. You just can't let anybody walk from that. That was too big, too important. Now, they didn't know when they first brought him in, and they charged him first, so they'd have a big hammer over him. That's how they do. But they didn't know whether maybe he inadvertently said stuff and drunken conversations at a bar, or was he doing this for money? Was he being threatened or intimidated? They needed to learn his motivation for doing this. So as they researched Ambrose's background and talked to other employees that knew him on a confidential basis, they found out that really he was a troop. He would listen to people who had higher rank than him. He always had shown that kind of a military kind of demeanor. And of course, being raised by a police officer father, that that would make sense. So they got the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, and they got the FBI agent in charge of the Chicago office. They got the highest ranking people they had. They I noticed they didn't use any U.S. Marshals people to do this. Kind of interesting. I'd think the U.S. Marshals Service would want to be part of it. But they weren't, and I can see why you wouldn't want to let them out, because they got a certain reputation, too. I mean, these governmental agencies, I don't care. They will kick their dirt under the rug if they can. Uh, police departments are the same way. We'll kick our dirt under the rug. We'll take care of our business, but we want to take care of it on our own and not put our business in the street, so to speak. A little bit like the mob, I guess. They're a little concerned about how he would react. They knew he was, whether he would be violent or not. They wanted to separate him from his gun, of course. And I've seen this on the police department. You get somebody in that you're accusing of a crime or even of an offense that they probably would get fired for. Kind of like to separate them from their gun before you drop the hammer on them, let them know exactly what you got. 
As they talked to other U.S. Marshals, one of them, Kim Woodrup, indicated that Ambrose was a kind of a high-strung dude, and to him, the job meant everything, in, in their opinion. Apparently, it didn't mean quite everything. It sounded like the outfit meant more than the job to him, but who knows? We don't really know exactly why he did this, I don't think. They were really concerned after his father had been convicted and died in prison, you know, how he would react to this. A decision was made before confronting Ambrose, of course, the weapons will be secured. And he kind of got to trick him out of that. So what they did, they told him he needed to report to the FBI building for a meeting concerning another fugitive that he was going to be sent out and get some information. So in the FBI anymore, they have real extensive security and no outside agent walks in and hangs under their gun. You got to check it in. It got like that even in, in the courthouses. You can't carry your gun in the courthouses if you're a local officer, only the agents and maybe like a DE agent or a U.S. Marshal, somebody that's working there. But if you're just going in as a witness, you're going to have to leave your gun at home. Of course, they had a metal detector had to go through so they could easily have him put his gun in a locker and his cell phone and all that, which is, you know, the rule ever since 9-11 in the FBI offices. Got him in there. He was like away from everybody. He was alone and they didn't want to take him into like the U.S. attorney's office in the courthouse. They didn't want anybody to know that they suspected him just yet until they dropped the hammer on him to see what they can get out of him. They get there, they give up their weapons, his boss takes him, goes over there with him, saying, oh yeah, I wanna, we want to find out about this case, and we're going to put you on it, and walk him into a room, and then somebody else comes in and takes his boss out of the room. So then they kind of chat him up and talk about, you know, the security of the building, and just kind of normal kind of chatting conversation. But then they bring in the audio and the video recordings of the Marcello conversations, and another unsigned affidavit which they want him to sign if they arrest him they'd even got ready with the press release and got a local jail all ready that they could keep him in a, on a secret basis so they were all lined up to take walk him out if they couldn't make him go back in undercover and work for him then and they had to front him they were all ready to do that they were ready for any eventuality so they start planning the evidence. They gave him a transcript and tell him that his fingerprints were found on the file. And of course, he denies it and he denies it and he denies it. He said, well, yeah, I picked up that file once. He said, well, we found it on the inside page. And he said, you know, we're not lying about this fingerprint evidence. You're not supposed to have your fingers on the inside of that. And finally, there's a certain point in time when you're interviewing somebody that, you know, deny, 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 but there'll be something that breaks them because they want to break anyhow. You know, their conscience is getting the best of them except for the real hard cases. You just kind of come up with that one little thing that you tell them that they just say, oh, the jig is up, man. I might as well, I need to help myself here. So finally he said, well, and I've heard this before, well, I screwed up, man. You see, I know I shot my mouth off, but I never took any money. Which is pretty normal. Yeah, I, I screwed up. You know, I got drunk. I shot my mouth off. Yeah, I was interested in the case. Yeah, I knew people. But, you know, I didn't intentionally do anything. I didn't think what I said was going to hurt anybody. And I was trying to get information out of them. So you got to give a little, get a little. And, and which is true. There's uh, That's always that fine line that coppers walk. And people that go over to the other side like that, coppers that do they know that they can use that to try to throw some kind of doubt into whether they were really actively involved with some criminal doing something or whether they were just trying to work with him and get information out of him and, and got used a little bit. 
he kept saying that he didn't really know these Marcellos and he didn't really know some of these people mentioned in the tapes. He said, I wasn't, didn't have anything to do with any phone calls to Calabrese's wife. But that's, that's another, that's pretty common there. You know, I try to minimize what they did and throw a little bit of doubt. During this whole time, he kept worried about, well, am I going to get fired? Am I going to lose my job over this? He said, you know, he said, you guys talked to the U.S. attorney. He said, you got a lot of clout, man. You can help me keep my job. Kind of one of those little deals. Well, I'll help you if you'll help me. And of course, the U.S. attorney, you're never going to commit to anything at all. You got to break them all the way down, make them come back in, admit everything, and then say, well, here's what we'll do for that. That's how the U.S. Attorney's Office plays. They do not make any promises up front. I used to as a detective and, you know, have somebody, well, I'll make sure you get out of this. And, you know, I didn't really know if I could or not. I'll make sure you didn't have to testify. I did that with a gal. It was a, uh, what was she, a receptionist, really, and phone aunt did all the phone work for an escort service that a mob guy had. And, and then it came down to it. And the U.S. attorney made me bring her in and testify. Oh, God, she was mad at me. But that's how it works, man. That's part of the game you play. I didn't lie. I, I really did not intend on her testifying. After meeting with them and talking with them for about an hour, he finally said, well, he'd cooperate. But he wanted to speak to his boss and his uncle, who was a courtroom security officer, probably one of those uh, retired cops who worked for the contractor that protected the courtrooms and ran the metal detectors and his immediate supervisor he wanted to talk to i said the u.s i said his boss the u.s marshal of the chicago area and then his direct supervisor a guy named jeff shank the u.s marshal was kim widrup and and jerry hansen was ambrose's uncle who was a courtroom security officer well they let him you know they said okay that'll be fine and and you got it you know when you're trying to get somebody to come around they got some little innocuous little thing like that why you just go ahead and do it for them and trying to show that you're willing to work with them they were still worried that he might try to figure out how to commit suicide or something so they really sat on him pretty good until those guys got there and then watched him through a glass or through i think it was cameraed up watched him through cameras and so then he wanted to use the bathroom, and, and that's when he came out, and he realized that there's about eight agents standing around the outside, and they're, like, all over him and accompany him, and, and like, he's John Gotti or something. And, and that's when he realizes the enormity of what he's done and what he's got himself into and, and how seriously the government's taking this. See, at, at the start, you act like, oh, it's no big deal. Yeah, you shut off your mouth a little bit. We just want to know exactly how much you shot off your mouth so we can figure out if you've done any damage and if there's some places we need to be a little more careful and the U.S. attorney needs to know if this is going to help their defense and I need to know what they know. So he goes into the bathroom and he tells the agent, said, don't worry, I won't do anything stupid. But later they would say, you know, I wasn't going to commit suicide. He said, I just wasn't going to try to flee. But there ain't no way you're going to run out of the uh, newly built, very secure FBI office. We've got one here in Kansas City. I went over there and when I went over to get the wiretap tapes when I got the court order to order them to let me make copies of all the tapes from the uh, skimming investigation. Why the security is unbelievable in these new FBI buildings after 9-11. It's just unbelievable. I was with a couple of retired agents and they wouldn't even let them walk around. Once you got in, you did not go unescorted anywhere. And when we were in a room going through those tapes, they had somebody in the room with us the whole time. We were a little bit lax. They'd like walk out and maybe run and go to the bathroom or something. But mainly they were standing there with us. Of course, it was nice because they helped us. Went and got a tape duplicating machine that would duplicate two tapes so we could have two sets of tapes that we got from them. Eventually, he meets with his boss and his mentor and 
and the U.S. Marshal. And, and they didn't really ask him anything and, and wasn't really monitored it. They just said we encouraged him to cooperate. So after Ambrose got done talking with the U.S. Marshal Widrup and his uncle, Jerry Henson, and his supervisor, he asked for the U.S. Attorney and the FBI agent to come back in. He also asked that his uncle, Jerry Hansen, be allowed to stay. They let him stay, and he started talking. He spoke at length, and they gave him information about Guide or Guide and Durango and the other members of the Marquette 10 and how they kind of like lined them up with the outfit because they really did know Lombardo and DeFranzo, just like the FBI had suspected. He claimed he gave the information that he obtained to Guide, who must have then transferred it on to the outfit because they knew Guide very well. This conversation really did not last very long because he didn't really know much more. He ends up going to trial as a jury trial. I guess he, uh, even though he copped all this, he ended up having a jury trial and they found him guilty of disclosing information about Nick Calabrese, but they acquitted him of the false statement charges. He got a four-year sentence and then he got three years supervised released after that. Ambrose did file an appeal in the Seventh Circuit, but that appeal was not upheld. Now, when the judge in the appeals court wrote his opinion, he ended it with this. The men and women who serve our citizenry in the U.S. Marshals Service are deeply dedicated, intelligent, and extraordinarily courageous public servants. It is no exaggeration to say that they are a bulwark of our democracy. It is an honor and a privilege to serve as a U.S. Marshal. Thus, the actions of John T. Ambrose are beyond comprehension. His conviction and sentence are affirmed. Uh, that's what we call case closed. <laughs> I'm sure Ambrose is probably out by now. I don't know whatever happened to him. I didn't try to find out if he was alive or dead or if he wanted to be interviewed for this. I don't figure he did. He probably would like to put this way behind him. He was a guy that was kind of caught in the roots of his upbringing and the corruption of the Chicago Police Department and Chicago court system, Chicago politics, and the outfit. They've been intertwined with each other for years. And this is kind of like, it started changing about this time, and there may still be some, but it's not like it used to be. It used to be just hand and glove up there. It was a systemic, goes all the way back to when they first created the city of Chicago and the first people that started running the government and the first outfit guys that showed up, the old black handers. This is not just Chicago, Illinois. Every big city in the United States has similar roots of corruption. Kansas City does, Dallas does, Denver does, Los Angeles does, and New York does, that we all have our little tinges of corruption, some more and some less. So I always say it wouldn't be a big city if you didn't have a little bit of corruption. Thanks for listening, folks. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate, have a donate page, and 
And each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is. And at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.